0: The TAT, or TAT-8, was the 8th ever transatlantic submarine communications cable, and the first ever successfully deployed submarine fiber optic cable. A submarine communications cable is just what it sounds like a cable that is placed upon the seabed, connecting one body of land to another. The earliest of these cables were installed in the 1850s, and they carried telegraphy messages along the bed of the Atlantic Ocean, connecting an island in western Ireland to a place called Heart's Content in eastern Newfoundland in Canada. This cable, though quite simple by today's standards, It was made up of seven copper wires, covered in a type of natural latex called gutta percha, which was derived from the sap of a tree with the same name, then bound in hemp covered with tar, before being sheathed with iron wires arranged in a tight helix. Despite that relative simplicity, it was immensely futuristic for its day. This cable connected two telegraph stations on different continents, and the successful connection reduced communication time between North America and Europe from around 10 days to mere minutes. A bogglingly valuable upgrade, despite the many issues that had to be overcome during the initial deployment, including just getting the operators at both ends on the same page as to how the thing was to be used, which was itself a minor adventure. The aforementioned TAT-8, then, was the eighth Such cable, and it went into operation in 1988. It was also the first to utilize fiber optic technology, so rather than sending electric pulses along a metal wire, it would send pulses of light through a core of glass or plastic, which was coated to keep the light isolated, but also to protect that relatively fragile core. The TAT 8 had two functional pairs of optical fibers within its core, alongside a backup pair just in case something went wrong with one of the other two. And that allowed it to carry just shy of 300 megabits per second of traffic, which was great for the time. But the shift from coaxial cable, which is a more conventional type of electrical cable that was widely used for these purposes leading up to this period, to the newer fiber-optic cable technology, came with several learning opportunities including an issue with the electrical interference shielding that was removed due to the changed nature of what the cables contained. It was thought that because it carried pulses of light rather than pulses of electricity, the TAT-8 cable sheathing wouldn't need as much interference shielding as its precursors. What the deployers of this cable discovered, though, was that sharks loved to attack these cables, reportedly at times, succumbing to a feeding frenzy over them which may have been caused by their prey detection mechanism, which involves picking up on electrical frequencies in fish and other potential food. But it may be that the shape or movement of the cable provoked them instead. In either case, the cable was repeatedly attacked and damaged by sharks, which led to a great many costly repairs until a shark shielding was developed that seemed to keep them mostly at bay or at the very least, kept them from damaging the cables to the point that they required repair, often by increasing the strength of the shielding with materials similar to Kevlar. Now, history is not linear or destined, but it's thought that the installation of TAT-8 and the subsequent solving of the problems that emerged as a result of that installation of this new technology led to the funding by IBM of what's called a T1. Link a quite fast for the time direct connection between two hubs for Cornell University and CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research. This, in turn, dramatically increased the quality of data connectivity between the U.S. and European internets, which were at the time only loosely connected via far more sluggish technologies, and that gave Tim Berners-Lee direct access to the National Science Foundation network, Which in turn helped make his early demonstrations of his creation, the World Wide Web, such a success less than a year later. It's also thought that this connection was a significant part of why the former Warsaw Pact countries adopted TCP IP internet protocols when the Soviet Union collapsed, rather than utilizing their own, which were under development and in some cases in use at the time, which would have, in essence, separated the global internet into splinter internets from the very beginning, each using their own set of fundamental standards, and therefore not connecting to each other very well. What I'd like to talk about today is internet infrastructure, and what happens when that infrastructure is stressed and strained. (laughs) You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Mike, and it's entitled, Is It Actually Possible to Break the Internet? This piece is predicated on the question of whether the increased strain being put on our online infrastructure will, or even can, crash that infrastructure. And that's a pretty good question, considering the numbers that have been recorded already, even relatively early on in the global spread stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Internet metrics company Ookla has been tracking online speeds around the world, and has found that there's a 12-15% to increase in internet usage, on average, worldwide, as of the third week of March 2020. And that's resulted in a decline in broadband speeds around the world, and a decline in speed around the United States in particular of nearly 5%. Internet security and performance services company Cloudflare says the increase is closer to 20%, but these two entities are collecting somewhat different types of data and from different sources, so it makes sense that their numbers would differ a bit. The pair of them, though, indicate that we're probably using the internet somewhere in the low-to-high teens percent-wise more than usual as of the early second half of March which, to put things in context, is less of an increase than we see regionally during the Eurovision competition in Europe, the Super Bowl in the United States, or the World Cup in many different countries around the world. It's just that it's happening everywhere at once, and there do seem to be even larger spikes in areas that are under tighter lockdown conditions. Seattle, for instance, weighed in at 40% higher than usual, as measured by Cloudflare, while Italy has seen a 30% jump in usage. Likewise, decreases in speed have not been universal. That 5% U.S. average is dwarfed by the 38% slower speeds on average in San Jose, California, and the 24% slower than average performance in New York City. As regions go into hardcore social distancing mode then, to the point where commercial entities are closed and people aren't going to work, net usage increases. And it's likely that as more population centers hit that same milestone, and many are predicted to do so in the next few weeks, we'll see more of these sorts of spikes, and potentially that overall surge in usage will also slowly, incrementally increase across the board. Fortunately, according to experts interviewed for this piece and Mike, and for other recent pieces that have been published on this issue, it doesn't sound like we have a whole lot to worry about in terms of the global internet infrastructure upon which we rely going down or becoming overloaded. From that mic piece, a quote from the Senior Director of Internet Research and Analysis at the Internet Society, David Belson, quote, As much as I hate to default to the pipes metaphor, backbone providers have enormous pipes. They are capable of carrying astonishing amounts of traffic. That's not really the issue, end quote. To understand why this would seem to be the case... Let's take a look at how those pipes have evolved since the early days of fiber optic transmission, which began with the TAT-8 submarine cable that I mentioned in the intro. The TAT-8 was the speediest piece of intercontinental communications infrastructure of its era back in 1988. Things evolved pretty quickly from there, though, with each new cable better protected, more reparable, and containing more or faster bits of plastic or glass than the previous one. As of 2020, there are just over 400 submarine cables in action, though that number changes regularly as old ones are pulled from service and new ones are installed. It's estimated that there are over 1.2 million kilometers, which is around three-quarters of a million miles, worth of cable running along the seabed in this way at the moment. And they range in length from about 131 kilometers, which is about 81 miles, that's the Celtics Connect 1 which crosses the Irish Sea between Dublin and Anglesey to the 20,000-kilometer or 12,500-ish-mile Asia-America Gateway, which connects Southeast Asia to the United States, passing through Guam and Hawaii along the way. Recall that the TAT-8 was capable of carrying around 300 megabits per second of data, which was amazing for 1988. Today, the fastest submarine communications cable is the M-A-R-E-A, or MARIA, which spans the Atlantic, between the United States and Spain. This cable is capable of carrying 200 terabytes per second, which is 209,715,200 megabits per second, about 700,000 times more than the TAT-8. And again, that's just one of over 400 such cables, all of which are vastly more powerful than those original telecommunications cables, even the fiber optic ones. So while these cables are nowhere near invincible, the majority of the threat that they face is not related to their carrying capacity. It's related instead primarily to fishing boats. Yes, there have been well-publicized instances of shark attacks on these cables, especially back in the early days before they figured out how to properly shield them and line them with nearly indestructible sheaths, but those are quite rare. As are attacks by terrorists or foreign militaries, in most cases these cables would not have the intended effect for the former and are more valuable to tap or otherwise spy upon than destroy for the latter. This doesn't mean that internet-carrying submarine cables couldn't someday become targets in some kind of military conflict, but it does mean that up until now, it's been fleetingly rare if it has in fact happened at all, which is questionable. There are a few instances of cable damage that could have been the result of intentional action, but none has been thus far confirmed as anything more than an accident. Instead, more than a third of all damage to submarine cables is caused by fishing trawlers and ships with fixed nets, both of which involve fishing boats dragging giant nets behind them, and those nets sometimes catch on a cable, causing damage or destruction as a result. About 25% of submarine cable damage is caused by ship anchors when they land just right on a cable, or more frequently, the captain forgets to draw the anchor up or fails to draw it up all the way, and it drags along the seabed, catching on a submarine cable as it does so. Another 8% of cable damage is caused by undersea landslides and other natural disasters, while about 6% is caused by the current, the water moving around in such a way that, that it drags the cables against rocks or other abrasive surfaces until the cable is damaged from the friction. There are a few very rare instances in which individual people have mistakenly cut cables, primarily on land, either cutting smaller internet-carrying cables that are completely land-based and buried, or submarine cables which are buried closer to shore, and which are then typically buried until they reach their connection point in a particular area. So there's always the chance that some kind of construction or other digging could sever these cables along the few feet or few miles of land that they have to cross after coming to shore before reaching their infrastructural end destination. In one famous instance, an old woman in the Eastern European country of Georgia was scavenging for copper to sell for scrap when she accidentally cut through a telecommunications cable with her spade which in turn took down the whole of the internet in the neighboring country of Armenia for several hours. This woman became known in the local press as the spade hacker, and the damage, especially to commerce, was significant. But the internet was restored in short order due to detection systems that are installed in these cables, and it's relatively simple to repair spans of telecommunications cables these days, even those that are underwater on the seabed. Often a ship with a long line drops that line down to the cable, grabs both broken ends of that cable, pulls them up to the ship where the crew can mend the break, and then the cable is lowered back down to its undersea home. So, all things considered, we're in pretty good shape in terms of these cables, for the moment anyway. Most of the threats are environmental or caused by fishing boat related mistakes, and even the worst of these is typically easy to fix within a few hours. There are over 100 breaks of some kind every year, and we seldom even notice for this very reason. What's more, the information throughput of these cables is massive, and even with all the bumps in usage that we're seeing, as a natural result of more people having access to the internet, more of our commerce and communication moving online, and because of the current pandemic-related lockdown situation, we're still in a pretty good spot. These cables account for somewhere in the neighborhood of 99% of our internet bandwidth, so as long as they are good, we should be good too. This sturdiness is not equally distributed, though. Some countries only have one point of failure, one cable connecting their local network to the larger global network, and if that one cable is damaged, they could be cut off for a while, as was the case with the spade hacker in Georgia, knocking out Armenia's internet with just a little digging in the wrong place. There are preemptive measures being taken in some parts of the world to make such issues in these and better-served areas less likely. But that's mostly done out of an abundance of caution, and because of another potential structural flaw in this system that may actually be the weak point that we should be worrying about, despite this weak spot not being itself technically a backbone component of the network. While the fundamentals of our global internet networks are generally strong and resilient, individual companies have far lower operational thresholds. And this is true even of the biggest, wealthiest, and most overall secure and well-stabilized entities. Netflix, for instance, is not anywhere near as resilient as the internet upon which it's built, nor is YouTube or Zoom or even Facebook. Facebook in particular has been under a lot of strain lately. In part because use of its services, Facebook itself but also Instagram and WhatsApp, has been increased by over 50% in some countries, and use in some of the region's hardest hit by COVID-19, like Italy, has increased by over 1,000%. In an interview mid-March 2020, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in an interview, quote, We're just trying to keep the lights on over here, end quote which is no doubt mostly hyperbolic. There's a good amount to be gained in terms of public sentiment for Facebook and other big tech companies at the moment, as public and governmental attention has shifted from the tech industry's many failings to how we might use their immense power and resources to dampen the impact of this pandemic on the world's people and economy, and presenting themselves as struggling heroes at this moment might be a good PR move. To be fair, though, They are trying to keep three of the largest and most highly trafficked online properties going, while also struggling through the transition of all 45,000 or so of their employees to remote work situations, quite suddenly and all at once. They've also been trying, with mixed success, to stifle abundant misinformation about COVID-19, not to mention all the usual other misinformation, on their various channels, while simultaneously doing what they can to goose ad revenues which is how they make around 98.5% of their global revenue as of 2019. Because ad sales across most marketing channels are slumping or cratering, that drop in steady income is likely making all of those other challenges they face even more challenging. So there's a technical challenge here, but there's also a systemic one. They're trying to make sure their globally distributed servers don't crash, basically, knocking out services for the record-breaking number of people who are using them. But they're also trying to deal with people issues, communication issues, and all the other issues that we all deal with in our personal lives, in which companies large and small around the world are juggling as the repercussions of this pandemic hit their industry. Similar dynamics are playing out at other companies around the world, but those that provide the internet services that we consume at greater rates during this type of economic shutdown are more obvious to more people because we're watching more streaming television playing more online games, and doing more of our communicating via chat apps and video conferencing. If these services slow, degrade, or drop, we're more likely to notice and to blame the companies in question, perhaps shifting our allegiances to one of their competitors. With this potential for slowdown and general online degradation in mind, European Union regulators have asked major streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, and YouTube to reduce their overall bandwidth usage so that their continental infrastructure is not strained by what is happening now, but especially what might happen in the near future, as more countries go into serious lockdown, and more people are kept at home, looking for ways to spend their time, and mostly settling on internet-based solutions to do so. What this means for streaming services is reducing the default quality of video that they serve to their customers. So instead of high-quality 4K or 1080p high-definition versions of a particular show or film, most people will, for the moment, instead receive something with a smaller file size, standard definition quality, so that each stream uses less network capacity, which makes it less likely, because of how much of the overall capacity such services use, that local networks will slow to the point of non-usability or tank completely. YouTube, and several other such services have since extended that same policy worldwide, and I suspect more of them, if not most of them, will soon follow suit. It's a move that very few people will even notice, and those who do probably won't mind too much, but it could significantly reduce the strain put on regional internet infrastructure, which, despite being resilient, is more prone to outages than the global infrastructure because we're dealing with antennas last mile cabling and mobile phone signals rather than relatively safe and resilient submarine fiber optic cables so alongside the vulnerabilities found in internet-based entities like facebook due to this new strain put on their resources the new responsibilities they face and the new dynamics of operating in this unfamiliar social territory There are also potential weak points in our last mile setup that could lead to temporary overwhelm in particular areas due to insufficient throughput, shoddy hardware, or infrastructural triage that brings too many signals together in too small a space, metaphorically at least. Many of these systems, thankfully, are reinforced in such a way that they're flexible enough to deal with super high peak loads, like around the 8 o'clock evening hour when people are typically back from work and watching Netflix, but also higher-demand moments like during major sporting events or highly publicized political debates. Some of this give isn't meant to last for longer durations, though, and there's a chance that everlasting peaks that go on and on and on for weeks or months at a time could wear at the digital and physical components of these systems, leaving some regions, be they neighborhoods or entire cities or countries, without access, Or with access that's so slow, most modern apps and services won't operate correctly for minutes or hours or days at a time. The global internet infrastructure could be fine then, but each of these local offshoots could be more prone to struggling. This is especially true if, as is the case with Facebook, our regional internet infrastructure companies, those that maintain the cables and sell the services, find themselves with labor shortages, with employees who understandably are not so keen to go out and work on these components, risking their health and the health of their families just to replace a busted cable or just an antenna somewhere, all so that a neighborhood full of people can enjoy faster YouTube. This kind of local degradation has not been common so far, but it could conceivably become a more consistent issue for some of us in the coming weeks even if the fundamentals of the overall internet remain strong. Our main internet-related structural weaknesses, then, have less to do with the hardware and software and more to do with people, with people who have very good reasons to not be functioning and operating as they typically do. There are branches forking out from the main telecommunications trunk that, despite the trunk, the main body of the internet, continuing to operate just fine, Those branches could themselves as individual offshoots not work as well as they typically do. And in some rare cases perhaps, they might even wither a bit, leaving the folks who rely on those branches for entertainment, education, and communication without any of these things that they've come to take for granted, at least for a little while. Our attention then may be better focused on ensuring that people are well, are able to function and flourish, so that those systems remain intact and operating as they're meant to, maintained and continuously upgraded by people who themselves feel safe and secure enough to continue doing their jobs, even when the world overall is not as safe and secure as we might prefer. Book that I'd like to recommend today is called *The Oracle Year* by Charles Soul. The premise of this book is that there is a man who inexplicably receives a few hundred prophecies, seemingly out of nowhere. He gets information about a few hundred things that will happen, and after a little bit of trial and error and figuring out whether these things are real or if it was just a dream, he begins to try to utilize that information in a way that is both ethical but also something that potentially doesn't screw things up in some major way he's trying to figure out the meaning of why he's received this information while also dealing with the consequences of potentially revealing that you know information to a world that is filled with people who would want to use that information for different purposes I don't want to give away too much more than that so that I don't accidentally provide any spoilers, so if any of that premise sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Oracle Year by Charles Soule. You can find out more about my work, including the books that I have written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find some of my other projects, primarily writing projects at this point, at ExileLifestyle.com, AskColin.com, and BrainLenses.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at ColinIsMyName on pretty much all the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.